If you would, take out the Word of God and turn to Malachi chapter 2. We uh, continue our sermon series through this book. Today uh, Today we're in chapter 2 beginning in verse 10. And we'll look at verse 10 through verse, verses 16. As you turn there, I, I've had a lot of feedback from this uh, sermon series, and I don't know if it's good or bad or, or what. People are like, wow, uh, this is rough. And my, even my wife said this week she was reading ahead and uh, almost uh, depressed about what's to come. And uh, some of y'all are skipping Bible Fellowship Group because you don't want to have to deal <laughs> with this book. I know folks who skipped church today because they didn't want to have to deal with the next section in this book, and even as I've heard this, Clay and I over the last few weeks have looked at other churches, how do they package their sermon series, what do they, what do, they do, and uh, I just don't know how to make uh, dung on your face, bippity boppity, <laughs> pep talk for Jesus-y, I just don't know how to do that, uh, but hopefully... You understand the point of the Bible is always about Jesus. And sometimes you have to go into the depths of our sinfulness and see it up close and firsthand in a very vivid way so that you understand in a more vivid way the grace and mercy of God in Christ. That's the point. The point isn't that we continue to wallow in despair. The point is that we are pulled and pushed to Jesus by his word. And that's what we're trying to do uh, in Malachi. And it is rough going. By the way, I have to, I have to dig into this all week long and, and think through it in my own life all week. And so uh, I'm, I'm very thankful for uh, the gospel and very thankful for Christ in light of seeing my own sin this week and in light of this passage, Malachi chapter 10, chapter 2 beginning in verse 10. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word, I'm going to read verse 10 through verse, through verse 16. As we stand before the word of God, we stand before the words of Christ. This isn't just some ancient book, some fairy tale. It's not just some motivational thing we do before we hear an inspirational message. This is, uh, these are the words of Christ, and He has brought us here by His sovereign power, uh, His plan. He has designed that you be here today, that we be here today together to hear these very words and that we be changed together as a church body. He has designed these moments and so we embrace them as a gift from Him. We, we uh, come before His word with meekness and humility ready to be changed because it is a grace from Christ to hear these words. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears and with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he, do, why, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. 
So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Oh God, I pray today that even in these These words that are so poignant and so direct and hard to hear in so many ways. God, we would find mercy and grace and love. God, you love your bride. You care for your church. You you will not leave her. You will not forsake her. And so even for the faithless here today, we have a glorious promise of your love and your devotion to us. And I pray at the end of all of this, we would be clinging to that promise more tightly, more faithfully, more diligently, knowing, knowing the power of your spirit to call us again to Christ and his word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Pastor Jeremy, he's gone. He's gone. When I heard those words, I immediately thought, has he died? And later she would tell me that if he had died, it would have been easier for her. It was a call from a lady in our church, a very dear friend of mine, whose husband had just left her and her kids. It was a man who had served in ministry with me, who alongside me and my wife and uh, other parents in the ministry of our church had served in the youth ministry, had taught the youth. He was somebody that I considered a really, really close friend at the time. He was theologically minded. He seemed to be rock solid in his discipleship and his commitment to the Lord. And, And for all purposes seemed extremely happy with his family but he had lost his job and he had spent several weeks at home alone and during that time sin had crept into his heart and he had intentionally made plans to leave town to leave his wife and out of embarrassment for losing his job start over in a totally different place A totally different life. And I vividly remember, I vividly remember where I was standing in my kitchen when I heard those words. I I can remember looking down at the exact squares on the floor, the tile floor in our kitchen in front of our pantry. I, I, I can see it in my mind as I heard her words, he's gone. Pastor Jeremy, he's gone. He's done with me. It's over. He's gone. And that moment began actually several years of walking with this lady and her daughter, her family, through a very nasty divorce. It it began a time of calling this guy in another part of the country over and over, calling him to repentance, calling him to come back home, calling him to his family, hearing him over and over say to me, this is none of your business. This is none of your business, over and over and over again. And as he would say, this is none of your business, I would be standing there with his weeping daughter. And I would think, it's none of my business. Several years of walking with this lady who is probably one of the most godly people I know, who for three to four years just said, I'm not getting a divorce. I'm not getting a divorce. I'm not doing this. This is something you're doing. I will not break my marriage vows. No matter what you have done, I will not do this over and over again. And even as she received counsel, even from people in our church, to protect herself financially, she would say, I'm not doing it. I will not get a divorce. She stood before the judge 
and said, this is not something I'm agreeing to. He's doing this. And all along, that was a, just an extremely powerful, vivid display of the gospel in my own life. In the face of wickedness, in the face of abandonment, this lady who said, I'm not doing it. I have committed to this marriage and I will not do it. Over and over and over again, she would say those words and live out this godly devotion to the gospel. He's gone. And to be honest with you, I've heard those words too often in the last 20 years of ministry. I was thinking just a couple weeks ago with Danae, over the last 20 years, probably most of our closest friends have gone through unfaithfulness. Some of them have gone through divorce. My closest friends in Bible college have been caught in adulterous scandals. And to be honest with you, when I hear words like he's gone now, I don't know if it's good or bad or what, but I'm usually no longer shocked. The one thing I am shocked by, and I told my wife this just a few weeks ago as we heard of another friend who this is going on with. One thing I'm shocked is I looked at her and said, why has this never happened to us? Don't you feel the grace of God in our marriage as we see other people all around us? This goes on. And you may, you may feel that way yourself. Even as you look at the culture, even as you look at your family, even as you think about your own life and you think about the destruction of marriages all around, you ever think, man, it's only by God's grace that it hasn't happened to me. Or maybe it has happened to you. How do you deal with that? How do you embrace the, the goodness and grace of God even in such a destructive, despairing consequence in the most holy union that God has given to us? Why, why is marriage so hard? And why does it seem in our culture it's treated so flippantly? And why does it cause so much heartache? When we get to the book of Malachi, God tells us why it causes so much heartache. He, as he is confronting his people about their flippant worship, he says, I'm going to point to something that shows something about your flippant heart, your marriages your commitment to your wife, your commitment to your home is a revelation of your thoughts with me. The covenant I've made with you is to be reflected in the home. And so if you want to know where your hearts are in relation to me, let's look in your home and let's look at your hearts in relation to your spouse. Malachi is confronting Israel in this very poignant way, in this very aggressive way, because this is God's last word to Israel before Jesus will come. And it's almost as if God's getting it all out on the table. I'm going to say it one more time to you. I'm going to warn you one more time of the coming judgment that is going to come and is going to wipe you out I'm going to warn you one more time of the silence that will be deafening as I will no longer speak these words to you again. And I want to vividly describe your sin. And last week it was, I'm going to wipe dung on your face. I'm going to show you very publicly what your sin looks like. And this week, I'm going to show you what idolatry looks like. Notice verse 10 have we not all one Father? Has God not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our Father? And here God is, is beginning this section by uniting faithfulness to Him and faithfulness to one another. And he says, have we all not one Father? And he's not talking about some universal fatherhood. He's talking about Israel having one father, God himself. 
who adopted Abraham, a moon worshiper, and blessed him, made an unconditional covenant with him, and says, no matter what, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless the world through you. And Abraham believed that promise. It was accounted to him as righteous, and the promises of God were passed from Abraham, Isaac, to Jacob, and on and on and on. And God is saying, I faithfully created you, and I have been faithful to that covenant, but you have been faithless. And the word here in verse 10 is to literally break the covenant. You've snapped it. You've torn it in half. This covenant that I'm going to bless you and you're going to believe me and trust me. You're not believing. You're not upholding your end. You are being without faith and it is revealing itself in your relationship to one another. Your lack of commitment to one another even within the home. The covenants you make with one another are regarded as profane, unholy. You treat them as common. What he's saying to Israel is, I have made this glorious promise to you, and I have upheld my end of it. And yet you look at that covenant and say, it's not a big deal. It doesn't really matter. And it's a revelation of your heart in the way that you treat one another. You can't say, I am faithful to God and be faithless to one another. I am committed to God and not be committed to one another in the most vital relationships that you have. The breaking of the covenant here is displayed in broken relationships with one another. God always evaluates our faithfulness to Him by our faithfulness in community. And we see that in the context of the church. The church is the children of Abraham through Christ. We are the blessings of Abraham. We have been blessed through the seed of Abraham who is, is Christ. God is fulfilling His covenant to Abraham here. He has created this new family by the gospel and through the Spirit. And we display faithfulness to God here today in the context of this new community. You can't be faithful to Christ and faithless in His church. You can't be faithless to His church and say that you're faithful to Christ. That's the point he's making here in verse 10, is that our faithfulness is always displayed in community. And our life in the church says something about the gospel. We treat the gospel as unholy, as common. We literally, the word here profane means we secularize it. It's no big deal when we treat one another as common, as no big deal. When we are faithless to one another. And so when we have a lack of commitment to one another... We're saying something about God. We're saying God doesn't have commitment to us. We are to display His faithfulness in our relationship with one another. And so we don't give up and we don't abandon. No matter how difficult it is, we don't alienate over petty disagreements because in it all, we are saying something about the gospel. In our relationships with one another, we are to declare that God never leaves and God never forsakes. In our relationships with one another, we are to declare that God loves and He never abandons. He is merciful and He is forgiven. We are to declare the faithfulness of God in all of that because God has been faithful to us. But He says here, Israel, you have been faithless. And it's displayed in your relationship with one another. And then He calls their idolatry adultery here beginning in verse 10. Judah has been faithless. He uses Judah here, which is the royal tribe in Genesis that God promises from which the royal king will come from. His king will come from the tribe of Judah. And later on, Judah is the territory that, that contained Jerusalem, that contained the center of God's promises, that, that, con that contained the, the, where God would rule and God would reign in Jerusalem, this ruling city. And so he says, Judah, to remind them of this kingly promise, to remind them of all he has done for this territory, you have been faithless. You have broken and torn the covenant that God made with you. 
An abomination has been committed. A hate it. A detestable thing has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. The, the, the apple of God's eye. The center of all that God is doing in the world in Jerusalem. This is God's holy city. This is where the promises will be vividly displayed. And in that place that should remind you of God's promises, you have been faithless. You have profaned. You have made unholy and common notice the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves. This center, this place of worship in the center of God's holy city that is the centerpiece of his plans and purposes for human history, Jerusalem, in that heart of that place, you have done a hated thing. Specifically in the sanctuary, notice the way he describes it, which he loves. God loves his holy sanctuary in his holy city. This is where the holiness of God is displayed. You can't come in here unclean. You can't come in here bringing unclean animals. There is to be a reverence in the sanctuary. Animals are killed to display. Things have to die for you to enter into the presence of God. Blood has to be shed. The holiness of God is displayed in the sanctuary. So God loves this place where His holiness is displayed. But also in the sanctuary is where He meets His people. Blood is shed. Worship is displayed. And God's presence is there in the sanctuary. And so God loves the sanctuary where He meets His people. He loves the sanctuary where His holiness and His love for His people come together where they are worshipped, where, where they worship and they are accepted before Him. The psalmist says that the sanctuary is to be a place set apart and loved. We see over and over in the Psalms that the psalmist said He longs to be there. I long to be in your holy place. I long to be in your sanctuary, this place that you love. Better is one day in this place than a thousand elsewhere. I want to be in the place where God's holiness is displayed and His love is displayed. And yet Israel comes to the sanctuary and it's like they're going to the gas station. This place that God supremely loves and it's just trivial. Ho-hum. Maybe going to a museum. Just something we do. It's not really a big deal to them. It's common. It's ordinary. And so what he's describing here, Malachi, is this place is no longer loved by God, but it's hated. They have done a hated, detestable thing in the place that God loves. And so it is no longer a place of love. It is a place of war between God's holiness and their sin. And he describes even further their sin when he says Judah has been faithless and continuing in verse 11 and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Literally, the sons of Israel are marrying women who serve false gods. They are marrying into pagan families. They are even divorcing their wives to be unequally yoked with idolaters which is a display that they really don't care about the covenant that they made with God. And it's displayed that they don't care about the covenant that they made with their wives. Their idolatry here is described as adultery. It, it, your idolatry, Israel, it's like you're leaving your homes constantly to go see a mistress. You come before me and you say the things that you think you're supposed to say and then you go out and you serve false gods to the point that you are marrying in to foreign families that, that bow before Baal, that bow before the Canaanite gods, that bow before the Persian gods, the Babylonian gods. You leave the holy presence of God to go out and commit adultery in that way. You have brought idolatry into the center of our covenant because you come into my sanctuary and your heart is somewhere else. You are committing adultery on this covenant. 
It would be like bringing a mistress into your living room before your family. That's the way God is describing their sin. As uncomfortable as we get in hearing that, God wants to shake us. Please see what your sin looks like. In light of all that I have done for you, Israel, wake up and understand what you're doing to the holy God of the universe. And Malachi continues, verse 12, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants of a man who does not bring, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts, who does this and then brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Here, the, the Lord, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, who always does what He says, you are not doing what you have said. And so He says, May the Lord cut you off. It literally means to, to scrape off, to scrape off, till it doesn't exist anymore. Anyone who would do this to the Lord, who would bring a half-hearted offering to the Lord and then go out and serve false gods and be united in that way to false gods. May they be blotted out forever. Any of the descendants of Jacob, any of the offspring of Jacob, any in the community of faith who would do this. And notice how they're to be blotted off. Their offspring will just wander away from God forever. What he is saying is your legacy will just be mixed into paganism. That's what he's going to do. Okay, I've raised the ground. I've sent in enemies. You've been exiled. You've been held captive. All of that has happened. Here, the next thing I'm going to do, I'm just going to blot you out. I'm just going to let you sort of devolve into non-existence and become pagans because that's what you want to do anyway. And I'm just going to let that happen forever. Your, your legacy will be apostasy forever. And he says to Israel, you are disowning God as your father. God will forever disown you as his son. And we see this is fulfilled as God will go silent for 400 years. You are so committed to these false gods. You are so united to them. I'm just going to let you have it. Just go. I'm not going to rescue you anymore. You're going to devolve into paganism, idolatry, and I'm not going to do anything about it. Now we think about idolatry, and the problem with us in our context is our idolatry is so much more subtle. If I came into your office tomorrow morning probably don't have any little wooden statues on your desk. You, you, you wouldn't be able to point to anything in your office that says he's an idolater. But what if we checked your bank account? What if, we, what if we saw the things in your life that you just give yourself over to and it is testified in the way that you use your money? There, there's probably no one here today that says, I'm going to this week divorce my godly Christian wife and marry a Muslim, young Muslim girl, which is what Israel is doing. Nobody here is today saying, I'm going to do that. But what if we checked your internet history? That's where our idolatry, that's where our adultery is revealed. It's so much more subtle. It's not out in the open for everybody to see. You're probably not cutting your skin for the gods of Baal but you probably are looking in the mirror worshiping the skin that you see there, caring too much about it, which is what God describes as idolatry. Those things that we would give our hearts and our minds and our life over to and say, provide for me, provide for me, do what I can't do. That's called idolatry. And we do that with money. We do that with people. We even do that with our families. We look to people and say, give me what I need most, and they can't. That's called idolatry. And we do it with so many things in our life. And the question for us today is, what if God just let it go? What if God said to you today, I'm not going to stop your idolatry? The things that you love so much and your heart just wanders toward. What if God just threw His hands up and said, have at it? What if He let you have the world that you want so much and yet you would lose your soul? What if He would do that to you today? It is the grace of God that He pulls us back over and over. 
It is the grace of God that He continually steps in and fine-tunes our heart so that we don't walk away from the covenant that we made with Him. What if He said of the church, as He says of the sanctuary here with Israel, this is a place I'm supposed to love. These are my people, and they meet me in the gospel. They believe in my Son. Their sins are forgiven. They have access to me through the power of the Spirit. This is my church. But they're fake. They're hypocrites. They leave here Sunday after Sunday, and they go and they serve other mistresses during the week. They say what I want to hear on Sunday, but they do something else through the week. And what if God said, just have at it? As he said last week, shut the doors. Don't come back. Just go serve your idols. Just go serve your money. Go serve your pleasure. Go serve your status. And he describes it this way, not so that we would just, right now we, we, we feel so, so maybe yucky and awkward. And God does that so you would see the heart and nature of your sin. See it that clearly. You know your heart wanders. You know your heart isn't something you can just reach in and grab and say, stop doing that. Stop wanting that. Stop thinking that way. You know that that's who you are. And what God does as grace and mercy today is He says, I want you to see what it is very clearly. You're prone to adultery. You're prone to leave me for other things. And I don't want that. That's why I've given you my son. That's why I've given you my spirit. That's why he's giving us today his word to call us back. To call us back. What if you didn't have this word today? Those sins that you think about in your own life and it was just covered up and you could just walk and do whatever you want and you didn't have the word, you didn't have the... Who would you be without the word of God? Who would you be without the church? Who would you be without the Spirit? How far would you wander without the grace of God? Think about that. But he steps in and says, oh, it's adultery. Your idolatry is adultery. Stop. In verse 13, he says, this is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, this place of sacrifice, this place of offering, you come in and you shower it with tears. You flood it with tears, with weeping and growing. You make this big scene because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor in your hand. It seems as though God doesn't hear me. It seems as though God is no longer present in the sanctuary. It seems as though he's no longer blessing us. Our economy's bad. There's this scandal with all of our leaders and politicians. God, why did you stop blessing us? And Israel stands there like the little kid just throwing a fit with, with their lips out. You just don't love me. Why not? And God says, you think this is my fault? With all of these broken down offerings you bring in here, let, let, me, let me describe your heart in this way. Let's talk about your marriages, verse 14. You say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and your wife to your youth, to whom you have been faithless. These women that you are chasing after, these pagan women that you are breaking the covenant with your wives to pursue, and you wonder why I'm not blessing you? Though she, the wife of your youth, was your companion and your wife by covenant. This word covenant means so much in the, in the Bible. It is this unconditional commitment to another person's good no matter what it costs you. And he says you have been bound to your wives in that way, that covenant and you are breaking it here and there and everywhere. In verse 15, he said, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And was the one God seeking, what was he seeking? Godly offspring? God has literally, what he says in verse 15, 
is God is the one who is forming these marriages. The the marriages in Israel are something God is doing for the purpose of seeing a godly legacy. God is doing this and He is sealing these marriages with His Word and His Spirit with permanency, with, with this covenant that you make before one another that is to reflect His covenant with you. And he's bearing witness to these things. God is hearing what is said at the wedding. And he is going to hold you accountable to these covenants. And he says, so guard yourself in spirit and let none of you be faithful to the wives of your youth. You see, they had made covenants with their wives. And now they are leaving them as if that covenant is not a big thing, a big deal. For a new, younger, more pagan version And they don't even understand why would God care about that. And it's because God is a covenant-keeping God. And when you break your covenant with your wife, you are saying something about your covenant-keeping God who he says here has sealed those covenants by his Spirit. His Word has spoken what, what, what God has joined together. Let no man rip or tear apart. This is what God is doing. And we see here marriage is a covenant. You have to think about marriage in the Bible as a covenant. It's not a sheet of paper. It's not a living arrangement. It is a covenant between one man and one woman before God by the power of His Spirit according to His Word before His community. It's all of that. It's not a wedding. It's a marriage covenant. And He says, you stood before me and made a covenant to the wife of your youth and now you are forsaking her and if this is what covenant looks like, okay, I'm going to forsake you. Notice verse 16. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, literally blood, says the Lord of hosts. And he says, so guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. He describes divorce here as murder. It is the tearing of flesh. When you stand before God and you make that commitment to become one flesh, to be so immersed into one another that you can't tell the other one apart, and then you forsake that covenant, you are tearing flesh, and you are left with blood all over you. You are killing someone. In the Bible, covenants were often made with blood. When God makes His covenant with Abraham, He divides animals, He splits them in half, and He walks between them to say to Abraham, If I don't fulfill my part of the covenant, I deserve to be left like these animals split in half. And that's what happens in divorce. You make a covenant and you split yourself in half when you violate that covenant. I want to be very careful here because I know people here who have experienced the pain and difficulty of divorce. And there's regret and there is guilt, and you feel dirty because of it, I don't want you to feel like second-class citizens today. Because there is grace, and there is mercy, and there is love, and there is the kindness of God, even on the most horrible of situations. And so many people I know who have walked through that pain and difficulty have leveraged it for the glory of God here today. And you would look in on their marriage and you are amazed. You are amazed at the love and devotion they display. So I want to be very careful when we talk about this. There are biblical reasons for Divorce, adultery, abandonment, unfaithfulness, abuse. And more than anything, there is restoration and forgiveness, even in light of horrible situations like this. But here, because marriage is a covenant, divorce is compared to murder. And adultery is the height of idolatry. To divorce someone for someone else is the height of of idolatry. It is the splitting. It is the tearing apart of a one flesh union to get what you want. That's what idolatry is. 
I'm going to give myself over to this no matter what it costs me. And in adultery, you are literally willing to kill someone else to get what you want, to kill your spouse to get what you want, to rip yourself apart from your spouse to get what you want. And here what God is doing is He is describing for Israel their idolater's heart. He says, you want to know what your idolatry looks like as a nation, as a whole? It looks like adultery, harlotry. That's what it looks like. You're chasing after things that will not provide for you. And we see this in every culture. Every culture, every culture's view of sex and marriage is a display of what they really believe about God. Do you understand that? It is a display of, do you believe God to be faithful? Faithful? It will be displayed in your marriages. Do you believe God to be loving and He will never first? It is displayed in marriages. And in our culture, what we define as marriage or try to define as marriage or distort as marriage, what we tolerate, our sexual ethics in our culture, it is screaming to us what we think about God. We are broken when it comes to these things in our culture. We don't even know how to talk about these things. And in the context of the church, you better not talk about these things. No! Our view of sex and marriage displays what we view of God. And if we have a high view of God, we're going to have a high view of the covenant that we make before God to one another in marriage. And this is why the church should be counter the culture on every issue of marriage. Our culture views marriage as a business deal. Hey, let's make an arrangement. Let's get together. Let's have some kids. I want to extend my legacy. I want to make a lot of money. So let's get together, let's negotiate, and let's see how together we can pursue the American dream. And it's a business deal, or just a pleasure exploit. What can I get in the moment? Biblically, marriage is a covenant where we are displaying the greatest love that we've ever experienced in Christ who is a groom who is so committed to his family that he is willing to die for her. But we are to display the faithfulness of Christ in our beliefs about sex and marriage, in our beliefs about this covenant. We are to display this one who, who pursues adulterers, who pursues idolaters, who is cut off for them. Jesus screams on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So idolaters and adulterers would not have to be forsaken. That's, what, that's love. And that is the covenant that He makes with us. And as a church, we are to fight to protect that covenant as God's community in the world. Our marriage order is to reflect a groom who loves his wife in every way, his bride in every way, and he proves it daily by dying for her and sacrificing for her, for her advantage. And a bride who receives that covenant by faith, every union that we see, that we walk around, every marriage that we see is to pull us to Christ's love for His church. Bad marriages... Leave us longing for something better. Good marriages just give us a taste and a flicker of this covenant between Jesus and His church. And as a church, we have to protect this. This means, young adults here today, when you get married, you're not having a wedding. Only. You are having a wedding to commit to a covenant. Your wedding is not just an event. You're getting married. And you are sealing a covenant before God. That's why the gospel should be preached. That's why if you come up to me and say, hey, I need this to be 10 or 15 minutes, I'm going to say to you, find someone else to do it. I'm not kidding. Because as a minister of the gospel... I have a responsibility to protect the gospel at every marriage that I do, every wedding that I do. And it is not no light, not no Tennessee. 
It is not some trivial thing that I, I'm not a hood ornament at your wedding. I don't even care about the pictures. I'll leave when it's over. I'm a minister of the gospel, and if it takes me two hours to seal that covenant, I will do it. I'll do it. You don't have to pay me a thing. But it is a covenant before God. And the Word of God must be there, preached and displayed. The, the Spirit is to be present. And by the way, your church family should be there. Your church should be there. Why? These are the people who are going to hold you accountable to the vows that you're making. And so if you can't get us all to the beach, have it somewhere else. Do you understand that? Because we're going to be present not as spectators, but as witnesses. Because when you stand before her and you say, I'm going to give my life if it costs my life. I'm going to give it up for you. And when you stand before him and you say, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to respect you, you are doing it before God and the Spirit is present in the body of Christ that is standing there and saying, when you don't love her, we're coming after you. And when you whine and you complain about him, we're going to tell you about it. The body of Christ must be there. In the community, we display that love by protecting that covenant. And as a church, let me just say this. We are responsible for one another's marriages. We are. Don't come in here thinking you can bippity-boppity for Jesus, raise your hand, go through some motions, and then go home and do whatever you want to. When it comes to your marriage. No, that is a holy covenant that is a walking, breathing display of the gospel. And as your church body, we are responsible for it. We are responsible for one another's marriages. That's why in our small groups and in, in our fight clubs and in, in our discipleship and mentor groups, you've got to have people who look you in the eyes and say, how are you loving your wife as Christ loved the church? How are you? How are you submitting to his leadership displaying the gospel? Go home and ask your wife this. Do you feel more like a mom or a wife? And then come back next week and tell me what she says. Don't lie to me. You come back and you tell me word for word what she says to you. You need those men in your life doing that. And your wife and kid... Kids need men in your life who will track you down across the country when you try to forsake that covenant. We are responsible. We have to disciple. We have to shepherd. We have to work on one another's marriages together. We have to... Listen, the more and more I'm around young adults between 10 and 20... We are shepherding them to learn how to be divorced. We're not shepherding them to plan for marriage. They experiment with this relationship, that relationship. Gaga, gaga, text, text here, text there. Oh, he doesn't like you anymore. It's not a big deal. I'll just move on. And what are we doing with that? Well, we're creating a divorce culture where you just bounce around. And love really doesn't mean anything. Romantic love has nothing to do with a covenant anymore. And we have to take responsibility to shepherd toward that so that our kids aren't going, I can't date. Oh, gosh. My friends think I'm a loser. No, they're going. Marriage reflects the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And that's awesome. And that's what I want to reflect in my romantic relationships. Now, we're all still working on that. I know we haven't got any of our young adults to that point. <laughs> my kids are the ones going, I can't date, oh gosh. <laughs> but what are we doing with that? What are we saying to them? And how, by the way, it works different in all of your homes. You don't have to do it like mine or anybody else's here. But you better be teaching your kids that marriage is a covenant that displays the greatest thing in the universe, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't let them settle for less. 
Don't let them settle for anything less than that. And by the way, our marriages are not a secondary issue. Our marriages are our greatest opportunity for evangelism. Think about that. In your marriage, you are displaying a groom who loves his bride. You are displaying Christ who loves His church. It is a great opportunity for evangelism. It is a walking, breathing declaration of the gospel. Therefore, it it should be void of any hypocrisy. We can't come in here and just do ministry together and overlook that evangelistic opportunity. We work on it together. And ultimately, we display the faithfulness of God with an unrelenting faithfulness to the bride of Christ. At the end of the day, we come in here and we are all messed up. And we've all messed up in all of the things that we've talked about today. Dirty, rotten, stinking sinners. Guilty of more than we could even fathom today. And yet Jesus has committed his blood to you. And we display such faithfulness when we are committed to the bride of Christ for which he died. This is why in the context of church, we should view membership as covenant too. You are committing to the bride of Christ. That's what you're doing. You're committing, coveting. I will be there for you. You will be there for me. And in the same way covenants were made in the Bible, I I will be split open if I decide to leave you. You can't have the head of the body and not have the body. If you came to me and said, I love you, you're an awesome pastor, you're a great friend, you're so funny, you're so sarcastic, and you're amazing, but I can't stand your wife. I would say, then you don't love me. And it's the same thing Jesus says about his church. You can't say, Jesus, I love you. I love you. You're awesome. But your church, I I really, you know, your church, not really that fun. Don't like hanging out with them. Kind of weird, goofy. If I'm seen with them, I, I won't be as accepted and popular. No. You take Jesus with his bride. And in joining a church, you hear What God has joined together, let no man rip apart. In Ephesians chapter 1, the church is described as the fullness of God, the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. That means his plans are incomplete without her. And he has followed her through the gates of hell to rescue her. And she will never hear anyone say of her bride, he's gone. 